Welcome back to SDP Talk. My returning guest today is a writer and author of a new book called How Woke One, Joanna Williams. Welcome. Hello. Now, um, this book, I've read a few books on woke, and this is the most comprehensive, uh, com comprehensive I've, I've read. Um, why don't we begin at the beginning? What is woke? What would you, how would you describe that? Well, it's a really big question, and it, it takes a whole chapter of my book to hopefully come to some answer. I mean, I, I guess the shorthand way of saying it is a kind of extreme form of political correctness, which mm. is absolutely focused on identity, yeah. I would say. And it's about sorting people into groups based on their particular identity and characteristics, mm. and then arranging those groups in hierarchies of privilege and oppression, or mm. assumed privilege and oppression, mm. and essentially making that the driving force of everything that, that happens within society. But it's also a very authoritarian mm. um, view, it seems to me, where if you step out of line, if you challenge this very identity-focused um, kind of way yeah. of shaping society, then you can find yourself cancelled or cast out of polite society, at risk even of losing your job, mm. your social media profile. So it's very illiberal, um, I, th I think a very regressive force. Mm. Yeah, and it's, and it's it's a difficult question, isn't it? Because it's so big and it literally is everywhere. But it, I always think it's a fixation on differences. So you're starting, and our, our basic criticism of it is that if you fixate on differences, then you'll never bring people together. Is that a fair way of looking at it? I think it absolutely is. And I think the differences that it's focused on in particular, it seems to me, are to do with race and to do with um, gender mm. or sex, as we mm. would have said a few years ago. Mm. And I think this is why I, in particular, wanted to challenge work, because I think by rehabilitating those differences and making those differences so important in society, it's an incredibly regressive political force. Mm. I mean, mm. when I was, a student in the early 90s or kind of becoming politically aware in, in I guess, kind of late 80s, early 90s. For me, kind of the driving idea was that the perfect society to live in would be a society where race just didn't matter. You know, nobody... That was the dream. It was, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, nobody cared. Know. And in terms of sex, you know, the idea that you could do whatever you want, mm. irrespective of whether you were male or female, it mm. made absolutely no difference mm. to anything. Mm. Whereas it seems to be the case nowadays that we're being told that these things are really important again. If those things are everything, though, the, the, broad, the really broad problem is that it makes conflict inevitable, isn't it? Because you, how do you get out of it? If we're all either an oppressor or a victim, how can you get out of that? No, I think you're right. And we see new forms of conflict then developing and becoming crystallised. So um, you see within the LGBT movement, for example, which was supposed to be this very progressive, kind of rainbow flagged or nice and unicorns and lovely mm. movement, um, you suddenly see this conflict then between um, gay and lesbian people who by very, very definition of being gay and lesbian are same sex attracted mm. or with the transgender movement who say that actually either there's Completely no such thing, thing as sex yeah. or sex is irrelevant, it's yeah. all to do with gender identity. Now this would never ever have been a conflict 20, 30 years ago, but now suddenly we're creating these new tensions, these new conflicts between But lump people. lumping these, I mean, we, there was a whole interview in this actually, Joanna, but lumping uh, LGBT and, uh, and so on is, is slightly odd anyway. I mean, Julie Bindle said the other day that apart from being same-sex attracted, what of gay and lesbian 
you know, what have they got in, what have they got yeah. in common? Not very much, really. And tea, nothing at all. No, I mean, no. This is absolutely crazy. Absolutely, because um, why should sexuality have something to do with your gender? No. I mean, it's just a bizarre mm. idea, isn't it? Mm. But, I mean, we can go into, I'm sure there's all kinds of reasons why these movements have been pushed together, but it certainly doesn't promote peace and harmony in society. It's never going to do that because you're focusing on differences and not unity. And if, if, if I think you should bring people together and if you focus on what we're all trying to do in life, which is most of us have the same aims broadly, then you might have a harmonious society if you do the opposite. Anyway, one thing um, that comes out of the book, because you opened it up on this, what is it? Um, it's not new, is it? Though? I mean, the, the term is new. But you could, I could, as you say, I could, you could describe this as sort of hyper-liberalism or uh, individualism. So it goes all the way back, doesn't it? Literally all the way. How far would you, you trace this back? So the word itself or, or the, kind of the ideas, meanings. the ideas. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, I think, I think it is important to say that there are two different things going on, it seems to me. I mean, you can trace the history of the word, which I, I actually think is a very interesting, interesting thing yeah. to do. And yeah. that really comes from American street slang, black American mm. street slang. And mm. I think it was a word which was quite important and, and necessary at the mm. time it was a way for people to warn each other essentially about genuine threats mm. Um, mm. violence mm. or even police brutality mm. i mean this is going back to the time of jim crow mm. and and segregation in the mm. us i think it was a very important word but <laughs> the irony of course is that for all woke people nowadays are very very quick to um, criticize anyone they accuse of cultural appropriation mm. they've actually appropriated the silliest, this word woke <laughs> it's one of the silliest on cultural appropriation one of the silliest ideas it, it, ever ridiculous. i mean it's con it's against sharing it's against openness and you can trip anyone up who's doing it because we're all sharing. We, you can't move. You couldn't go anywhere. We what, are, you know? yeah. But I actually think cultural appropriation is, you know, a really progressive force because to me it's about, well, I mean, you could say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, mm. but it's about expanding your horizons, looking at what different cultures have to offer. And the way I think the whole world progresses mm. and becomes a better kind of, again, I'm sounding like a real hippie now, but a more kind of peaceful and a harmonious place mm. is by taking the best. Well, it's a fusion. This, this is the point. This is, I mean, I, I'm going to sound like a hippie now because the, the, I think in the art world, I th you know, I like visual art and I like literature, but I think music is the top of the tree. I think top of the tree in music is is the snapshot from sort of 952 to about 963, 4, hard bop, jazz. That is, for me anyway, I think that is the top. I think nothing will ever come close to it. And as an art form, uh, American jazz was absolutely a fusion. I mean, mm -hmm. it happened in American cities. Uh, you know, the black community's contribution to that was immense, but it, but a lot of the writing was done by uh, Jewish people, yeah. and it was a real mix. And what were they playing on? Instruments and through amplification that was American. It was all, you know, piano. So how, when are we going to stop? No, so absolutely. It's absolutely, it, it's, you wouldn't have got hard bop unless the whole thing was thrown together at that time. And, it, and sadly, it'll never happen. I don't think it matters that it won't happen again, because it, we've got the recordings, <laughs> so it doesn't matter. But yeah, I totally I agree. But, but you can look at literature as well. I mean, yeah. the classic example, if you take the works of Shakespeare, I mean, there are very few stories in Shakespeare that are a completely unique product of Shakespeare's mm. brain. Mm. I mean, he was like a magpie. He was picking yeah. and collecting of from course. Greek myths, Roman legends, yeah. you know, yeah. and taking an amalgamation of all of these things mm. and, and making it into something 
something new and exciting. Um, that's something that has stood the test of time. Yeah. But likewise, a lot of literature since has, has drawn from Shakespeare. And it should. Yeah, and it's, no, exactly, but this is, I think exactly. that's what a writer, the first, it's the same as good poetry, the first thing before anyone has written anything is, is extreme noticing, is acute yes. noticing rather. Notice what the world is like, observe it, and then it's it, and then you might make something of it, and that's what that's what it's about. But that used to always be the sign, I think, of being an educated person, mm. that, and not just being educated, but being creative and being able to think critically mm. was what you could take from other sources and then create something new with that and build mm. upon it, standing on the shoulders of giants build something from the intellectual products of other mm. people and create a product it's a and very, turn it into something new. It's a very selfish way, uh, criticising people for appropriating ideas and it's a very selfish way of looking at it, saying it's mine, I, only Absolutely. I can have it. You know, Dvorak uh, listened to a lot of um, gypsy music in Central Europe, that's why we have the recordings. Again, we wouldn't have them without it, it's absolutely nuts. Um, you make a claim which I, uh, I agree with, but I, I think we should go into it. You, you say that woke, wokery and woke is very elitist. Why mm -hmm. do you say that? Well, I think if you look at the impact that it has on society, I think for one thing, we were talking earlier about how it divides people into groups. Mm. One group that woke seems to be very uh, unaware of or unconcerned with mm. is, is class, mm. for example, um, and particularly working class and class-based mm. inequalities. Mm. Woke people seem to have very, very little time for that. You mm. know, they're very comfortable dividing people according to um, race and, and uh, sexual sex, preferences or gender identity, yeah. all the rest of yeah. it. Actually looking at the inequalities that stem from class as something that they're really mm. very uncomfortable about, don't want to get into Because they might all. find some poor whites. <laughs> well, and that, that's the exactly. problem with they do that. Yes, yeah, yeah. and that, that would then turn the whole kind World of intersectional pyramid yeah, yeah. that they've created. Yeah. It, it calls all of that into question. So yeah. I think that's one reason Then why. the sons and daughters of presidents couldn't go to Oxford and tell <laughs> exactly. how, how privileged you are. Yeah, no, it, yeah, class certainly does throw a spanner in, in the works. It really does. And But I think in sitting above class and in having these preoccupations mm. that are not concerned with the material interests, so mm. actually if you go out there and ask 10 random people in the street today, you know, what's the number one thing you're concerned about at the moment? My guess is that at least eight or nine people would say the cost of living crisis. Yeah, of course. You know, whereas with the obsession about how you identify and I mean, you take the thing that is a complete bugbear to me, this obsession with pronouns, you mm. know, what, how we should apologise perhaps, you know, we I didn't begin this interview yeah, by declaring yeah. our pronouns. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you take things like that, they're a million miles away from the concerns of the people on the so street. It is, so there. it's imposed. I mean, that's what I sort of took from your book, which is that you say it's elitist because it's top-down imposed. Yeah. This, this doesn't bubble up from uh, the masses. It's, <laughs> no. not, it's not like that. It's being I imposed. I guarantee there are very few yeah. people on council estates in Middlesbrough yes. um, who are yeah. jumping up and down with placards saying, respect my pronouns, respect my pronouns. You know, that is not happening. These preoccupations, mm. they're totally top-down. Luxury. They are, they mm. are. And I think the other thing that works to the advantage of, of a kind of elite group in society is how these um, obsessions then and, and the, the distinct vocabulary that comes mm. with them, um, I mean, kind of invented pronouns and different ways of speaking, even, you know, distinct words, new words that get invented to cover the kinds of issues that they're concerned with. Um, you know, it's, it's used to demarcate 
this group so they can kind of identify yeah, each other. You, you get, yeah, if you looked, I was thinking, I don't think you mentioned this in the book, but I think if you look at it from a sort of Darwinian point of view, um, something happens, it has to have some utility or it wouldn't, it wouldn't happen. So what's the utility of work? And I think, well, it's, it's middle-class status appropriation, it's hierarchies, uh, it's, it's, it's enables certain people to build up esteem against other people, doesn't it? So that's the class thing again. It, yes, yeah, I'm using yes. this, you know, uh, we joked about it, but the, you know, the young, are, they imbibe this woke patois and they understand it. If, you're not, if you don't really know what that means, then you're really uh, de classe, aren't you? Or, absolutely. You know, that's the problem. Yeah, absolutely. But I think the advantages to an elite group go even above and beyond that as well. I mean, particularly in the workplace, it kind of allows them to divide and rule. Mm. I mean, it's the old fashioned kind of lefty way of putting it. Mm. You know, they, they, if you look at the kind of rise of equality and diversity officers in the workplace, mm. you know, go back, 30, 40 years and your personnel officer would have been concerned with, were you arriving on time? Were you leaving? Clocked in. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. Clocked in, clocked out. Yeah. You know, were you working hard and productively mm. in the time that you were employed? What they didn't have control over was mm. what you were thinking. Yeah. You know, and why should they? Exactly. If you do your job work. Exactly. No, I, I agree. I think it is. It's one of these situations where um, this elite that promotes this stuff has power, but it doesn't have hegemony. It, 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 I'm not sure it ever will have hegemony because uh, unless everyone starts believing this stuff, I think it is a, a certain, maybe 25% of the public think mm -hmm. this, the rest of the people just trying to get on with our, our lives and, and, and get on with it. But I think you're, 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 you're completely right to identify the wealth inequality thing. I, you know, some theorists think it's just an excuse, it's just a, a distraction uh, to avoid scrutiny about massive wealth inequality. And you get, you get a, a publication like uh, the Financial Times that produced this thing. We buy it occasionally. Uh, and uh, you're looking at uh, this vile um, supplement they do, how to spend it, which is just a gross, I mean, it's just gross, massively expensive watches and, uh, and jewelry and, and high but they're woke as anything in the FTT and they, no one says anything about it. No, absolutely. I mean, it, it's not only a way of demarcating, but I think it's a way of reinforcing mm. those, that, the kind of inequalities that exist. Like I say, it, it allows for a group of people to be ruled over in mm. the most authoritarian mm. uh, and horrible way, I think, because like I say, it's not just a question of ruling people's bodies, but mm. ruling people's thoughts. minds as well and their thoughts. Yeah. And I mean, we see examples of this all the time where people are have a police come knocking on their door for yeah. uh, tweeting something deemed inappropriate. Uh, and mm. this kind of control over the population that but it's that a distraction, from that. isn't it? You, you say, I mean, you give some brilliant examples in the woke capitalist section where, you know, you might be in a, an ice cream company and you might earn, you know, multiple, you know, hundreds of times, thousands of yes. times the income of the workers that produce the, the milk and cream that go into your product. Let's not talk about that. Let's talk about something else. Let's just distract you onto something else. So those important things don't get talked about. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. You know, I, I think it definitely does serve as a distraction and a mm. useful distraction because you can be doing all kinds of dodgy things over there, and you can say, "Oh, look over here." Look, you aren't know, we nice? Yes, yeah. <laughs> look at our rainbow flag in yes, the window. Right, yes, yeah. You know, and let's yeah. just concentrate on that and yeah. let's ignore the exploitation. I mean, there is exploitation inherently yeah. Yeah. built into the capitalist system. Yeah. I mean, capitalism yeah. drives off the exploitation mm. of, mm. of people selling their labour power for other people 
people to mm. be able to make more money off that. So, I mean, mm. look at so, the rainbow uh, flag. Yeah. It's a very good way of turning a blind eye from that. But I, I think, importantly, it is more than a distraction as well. And I think, it, it, like I've said already, it's got very useful ways of kind of controlling both workers and consumers and, mm. and kind of channeling and, and um, being able to uh, kind of, yeah, control people mm. within a society. But it also takes on an economic dynamic of its own. And I think it was only really in the course of writing the book that this properly came home to me. How the thing I, I, that makes me so angry about woke is when you look at, say, an institution like the NHS, which takes, um, you know, millions of pounds of taxpayers' money. Mm. So this is our money that we work hard for, you know, we then pay in taxes. And they then employ this whole group of equality, diversity, inclusivity managers mm. whose whole job is to kind of promote work values. And this is not just in the NHS, I have to point out, this goes on in universities, mm. you know. Oh, it's everywhere. Everywhere, they, but that's, everywhere. That, that's where the goals of the organisation to provide healthcare or to sweep roads yeah. or to whatever they're doing gets thrown out or off kilter because their focus isn't on those things. Exactly. And they, I mean, I wrote a piece for Spiked, I think it was a year and a half ago, about a friend who was playing football in Manchester, friend of a friend, and he, he broke his a bad break uh, in the middle of Manchester, we know, our third biggest city, and uh, rang the ambulance and said, oh, it's going to be six hours. Six hours in the middle of Manchester. And they ended up going to a local swimming pool and getting a, uh, I think in the end they got a ladder, and put him on a ladder, put him in the works van and took him to... The hospital there. Now, I would say, for as long as that sort of thing is happening, there can be no departments doing this stuff no, because it's just no, not no. as important as someone no, with a compound not. fracture of the leg. No, but the, but the point is that you've now got this whole kind of class in society whose job is just to promote these work values. Mm. Not only are they earning very nice, mm. very, very nice salaries. I mean, often the people who are working in these EDI roles are earning double what mm. the kind of regular workers mm. are mm. earning. Mm. But they're doing it off the backs of mm. our money. Exactly, you know, yeah. Our taxation yeah. is keeping them in these positions. It's the opportunity cost. I mean, you could spend it better elsewhere. Yes. So I, I don't I think a lot of this isn't socially useful at all. Just before we finish with the work capitalism thing, I think the frustration that people have there is that they feel powerless in that, honestly, it doesn't, they're all doing it, Joanna. So they, if your bank does it, the next bank's doing it, you really have no power as a, as a consumer to switch. No, it, are you try and find me a multinational that isn't doing it. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Absolutely mm. right. And um, we have this rammed down our throats and, and we don't want it. You know, mm. we, we haven't asked for it, but you get it nonetheless. So, yeah, I go into my bank and the poor woman behind the, um, the cashier, you know, is there Sandra, she, her. And I'm like, oh, you know, I feel sorry for her. But and, it's never, know. it's not she, it's she, her. It's never Bond. James Bond or something, something interesting <laughs> no, like that. No, no, I don't know what we, it is frustrating but I, I think the, I think when, when people, I'm concerned when people, when populations become powerless and are demoralised and I think some of this stuff, uh, particularly, I mean, I, you, you, could, you could talk about the gender identity stuff if, later if you like, but, the, but some of it is designed, I think, to demoralise people and mm -hmm. I think it's very, very similar. If you speak to people, I had, you know, spoke to Constant Kissing recently, but I have a friend in, in Poland, you know, and I visited him in the, in the 80s. A lot of what the state was doing then was trying to demoralise the public. The public knew what they were told was false. They had to sort of pretend that it wasn't. And that was very demoralising for it. 
let's get on to the, the sort of production line of this stuff. So it, a lot, you know, it's like a sausage machine, and you know what I'm talking about. There's a production line, it's the education system. And you put kids in, and then they come out, and then you put them through the, uh, the academy. And uh, you, know, you could argue that a lot of universities are, are sort of lo like uh, woke factories. Um, do you, I mean, first, do you think that's true? And secondly, do you think, what, what are the consequences of that? I mean, Michael Lind calls it um, elite overproduction. Quite a few, and what are the consequences of that happening? I think the main consequence, so yeah, definitely, I think is this that. is what's happening, uh, sadly. And I think we see it more and more, you know, every week there seems to be some article in the newspaper reporting on what's going on in universities that mm. just reinforces this point. So. Um, there was a piece the other day about the impact of Decolonize, um, mm. a project which has been going on in higher education for several years now, mm. which is really about trashing, for want of a better word, mm. every bit of knowledge that mm. has stemmed from somebody who was white mm. in the past. Mm. Uh, so so white, the whole of Western civilization is exactly. up for grabs. Yeah. So Jane yeah. Austen, Shakespeare gets taken out of your literature courses, mm. Pythagoras, Newton, David you Hume. Know, they all have to go, yeah, Hume, yeah. Plato, Aristotle, yeah. you know, all of that, all of that knowledge. I mean, you know, just as an aside, it's such a, a not only ridiculous concept, this idea that knowledge has a, comes with a skin colour, mm. um, but it's also incredibly racist. I, I think it's an oh, incredibly it is racist. racist it's, idea. It's mad, but it's also mad. It's also, but it's also overstepping. I mean, it's 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 verging on impudent because if you come, if you're a Chinese student, you come to a Western university. If you go to Germany or Switzerland, France or, or Britain to do philosophy, you might expect to read some Western philosophy. Therefore, you might expect to read a little about Democritus, Epicurus, uh, Socrates, Plato. Then you might go on to Hegel and, and the others. That's what you might pay for. Yes, you know? yeah, so no, completely. It's, it's completely, completely absurd. But I think, you know, wherever you are in the world, this, this is the enlightenment knowledge that mm. has mm. kind of shaped society mm. today. And mm. we do young people such a terrible disservice if we mm. deny them access to this knowledge? Do they buy it? I mean, do they, do you think they, I mean, I'll give you an example because I, if they do buy it, then something has changed around because I was educated at, at you know, my first degree was in town planning. Virtually all of the, um, of the, of the lecturers were, were, were Marxists or very, very uh, left wing. Planning is a sort of, there's a hint there. I mean, they believe in state action. So, you, you know, you said, but, but it's town planning. Now, I don't think of the 42 of us that went through, most of us probably were on the left, but we didn't, we didn't come out convinced Marxists. Some mm. of us came out convinced of, of Marxism as descriptive theory, but not as a prescriptive. So, but we just didn't lap it up. What, no, are they just lapping it up? No, what? no. You see, but I think something quite different is going on nowadays because I certainly would say my educational experience wasn't a million miles away from what you've described. And, Suddenly, remember particular school teachers, mm. sixth form teachers, who mm. were completely unashamed Marxists. Mm. You know, and, and I really enjoyed being taught by them mm. and didn't agree with everything they said. I wouldn't have had it any different. It. Exactly. I just didn't. I just didn't accept everything they said. No, exactly. But that was the the point. In a way, these good teachers could be completely upfront about their own political views, but present it in such a way that 
you recognise that it was a view mm. and that there were also other views, mm. whether they did that by presenting the other view to ridicule it or um, kind of talking so about it. So you think they're not, they're not being presented with both sides? You mean now, nowadays? Yeah. Um, I think not only are they not being presented with both sides, but they're not being told that this is a political stance at all. Mm. So when my history teacher, for it's example, natural. had a picture of Karl Marx on his wall and uh, you know a hammer and sickle flag on the other wall, you knew you were in the in the presence of a teacher who had very strong political views mm. and were, were very much from one side. Whereas when teachers come in nowadays and say, well, you know, it's very important we've decolonised this curriculum, mm. they're not saying, you know, this is my yeah. political standpoint. They, they present it as a moral to be fair, or an ethical No, stance. I give, give my, my tutors credit, actually, uh, in Birmingham in, in the uh, early to mid-80s. We knew what their politics mm. was. They didn't ram it down our throats. But then we knew what sort of exactly. where they were coming from. But it was it was not at all, uh, you know, they were too professional actually, yeah. to be honest. Yes. Well, you see, I had some who were professional, some who probably did overstep mm. the mark. Mm. But but the point is, you always knew it was political, mm. and, and because you knew this was a political view that you mm. were being given, or, or their political perspective you knew that there had to be other political mm. perspectives mm. as well. And sometimes they would be completely professional and give you that other perspective. Sometimes just the fact that teaching wasn't so dominated by mm. just the one viewpoint meant that just as I had a Marxist history teacher, you also had a history teacher who you knew was probably quite conservative. Yeah, I mean, it, it would have been Thatcher at the time and was a secret it, Thatcher the, voter. The, the problem is that it seems to have, we seem to have arrived at a situation where it's not just whatever your account is. Do you accept that account of history or society? It's not just that. It's just as that's the, that's a bad thing to think, and that's yeah. a good thing to think. And it's really as simple as that. And and if you if you think if you don't think in the good way, if you're not on the good step, yes, then exactly. you're really in trouble. Exactly. In so, so no university comes in and presents decolonizing the curriculum as a political project. Nobody says, you know, it's because we're Marxists that we want to decolonize, or it's because we're kind of thinking this that we want to decolonize the curriculum. We're just told, you know, the curriculum is a product of racist, uh, colonial yeah, thinking. But a, but and so the right thing, morally right thing to mm. do is to decolonize. And if you disagree, you're racist. Yeah, but and nobody wants to be thought of as racist. But a reasonable account of what's going on is that the universities have been colonized. <laughs> Aren't they? Um, by, by a different time. You know, yes, that's, that's what's happening. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, but, but, you know, to go back to your original question then, so you have got a generation now of students who are coming through this system. You know, one point that I think is, is really, really important, and I kind of made this a few times in the book, but I, I think you can't reiterate it enough, is in terms of why this has happened. You know, I think universities have given up on any project around knowledge first. Mm. You know, they or critical inquiry first. Yes. They're not. They're not. They, yeah, I totally agree. I think that's lost. And and actually, I think philosophy was like because I went back to do what I really wanted to do, the, you know, just over ten years ago, do philosophy, and I went back to Durham and did that. And actually, at the time, it was pretty good. Yeah. And I think I think philosophy departments because it's so much. You know, it's like you know, it's like saying you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm an Epicurean, or I'm Platonist. Well, yeah, that's interesting. Why? You know, so it's not, you know, it's not going to kill you or something. You know, I, no. I hate you for it. It's, it's, it's. That's interesting. And even where it gets, you know, like I don't know, um, your substance dualism or something, which divides religious people from, you know, Western materialists. That's not a. It's not a problem for a philosopher to to, to, to be a substance dualist. It's not. You know, you can argue the case. It's not going to. Mm -hmm. You're not going to dislike someone for doing that. So I think they've been. 
they've they've held on to it, but I, I gather it's it's happening in philosophy as well. well obviously, I mean, obviously, Kathleen stock yes, you know, got in trouble, and, and, and I don't know. I mean, there's been big things in philosophy about. Um, uh, uh, the equality of the sexes, for example, that that women are underrepresented in philosophy, and therefore well, they went to Durham because I was taught by Nancy Cartwright, <laughs> and it was it was a a privilege. I didn't know who I was going to get for you know philosophy of science. You enrolled, and then and then she came over from UCLA, and and, and I you know you, you end up being taught by uh, a great that's connected into all you know Ian Hacking and all the rest of the the greats of analytic philosophy. So yeah, I mean it, I don't know. Yeah. No, well, I, I mean, I think women are and can be excellent philosophers yeah. and, and yeah. you know, have contributed yeah. wonderful knowledge to uh, philosophical knowledge to the mm. world. Um, but because of this concern, you then get, I think it was Cambridge University a few years ago, started this practice or in, insisted that reading lists had to comprise a certain percentage of, of books by women. Well, you're going to struggle because the, cause the, the canon yes. is not, I mean, the society wasn't like that. You just have exactly. to accept that the... The, the, you're standing on the shoulders, and the shoulders are what most of the male, I'm afraid. You've got Mary Wilson Craft, and you've got Philippa Foote. It, women, women in analytic philosophy really came in mid late Victorian period, and then into war, and then post war. Mm -hmm. And then post war, you got a lot of brilliant people. Um, but but you've yeah. also got philosophers at that time, women philosophers at that time, who absolutely consciously didn't want to be seen as women philosophers, no, just philosophers. or female That's philosophers. The way, they're just philosophers. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah. didn't put their first name or their Christian name, if you like, on their papers mm. or just went by an initial or, mm. or you know, even used a pseudonym because mm. they wanted to be judged on the quality of the philosophy, not mm. on the basis of their sex. Yeah. So what Cambridge and, and Oxford were doing then by insisting on... Regressive. Not just on a certain... They didn't just insist on a certain proportion of women being on reading lists, but then in order to make this clear to the student, because of course with woke it's no good just to act, you have to virtue signal mm. that you've done this action. Um, they insisted on having the kind of Christian names of the philosophers so it become clear to the students that they this were whole reading thing, work The whole by women. thing is dreary. But the if, and I think, you know, and if, uh, it's interesting with philosophy in, in the academy because actually if you can't critically assess things and challenge things and ask questions, you can't do philosophy. So no, you're, you're absolutely. Not, you're out of there. Um, one of the problems for a politician is that you we're always told that all this stuff's downstream of culture, so your politicians are reacting to mm -hmm. it, and, and that's true-ish. I, I think you've got to accept that. You, you, we're swimming in these waters, so it's very difficult to say, you know, um, we'll, we'll make, even make the weather. And I'm just going to quote something you say in the book, mm -hmm. which I think is a particularly good uh, um, part. You say, there is a non-governing elite that runs business, academia, the arts world, leading charities and campaigning organisations, the church the education system and the mainstream and social media. And I think that is it. And you say the state is not run by government ministers. Mm. I mean, how, we, how, how can you deal with this? I mean, people say, well, the Tories have been in for sort of, you know, 12 years and they're not woke. Well, they are quite woke for a start, yes, but, yeah. but they, they have had no impact whatsoever. And it's because of this institutional thing, isn't it? Well, it, it is, but also I wouldn't want to let them off the hook completely. I mean, in a way, I guess they've allowed this institutional um, class to emerge and to continue mm. peacefully existing. They've not shaken it up or they've not ignored it. I mean, if you look at somebody like Victor Orban, who I know is a controversial figure and I'm not kind of 
trying to flag him up here as, as somebody... Well, he's elected. Yes, exactly. He's elected. But also, I think he has a particular confidence where he's been able to say, you know, because I'm elected by the people, mm. the majority of people, I actually don't care two figs what these people in the media or this branch of the media or here or here think, you know, because they're not the majority of people who voted mm. for me. And to just very confidently then kind of pursue his own course... I think we've not had a conservative government like that, mm. which doesn't mean to say it's not possible. You know, you, you could have had a prime minister who said, you know, I am not going to care what the media says. I think it's very difficult. You know, I'm not, I'd be upfront about that. I think it'd be very difficult. Unfortunately, I think our political class, and, and by the political class, I don't mean the kind of even the elected politicians, you know, the, the kind of proper Westminster bubble people. I think, sadly, they are far, far more concerned about what people on Twitter think about yeah. them than what the people but in I'd their argue, constituencies I'd think about as, them. I'd argue as a species, they are the, the wrong type, anyway, to use a philosophical thing, type and token. So they're, they're all of a type. This is the problem. Yeah. So they, they, are, they, go through, they go largely to the same schools. Labour and the, the, the establishment political class, the governing class in this country, does not vary very much across the no. parties. It just doesn't. If you know them, you know that. It's, it's just true. Um, there isn't very much difference. And a lot of them could have picked any party, really. Yeah. Um, some, some are political, but they're a minority in their parties. So this system that you've got of, of, of finding these people, selecting them, yeah. and putting them into power, um, you're, for some reason, the political system that we have now doesn't... The, the divisions in society are not represented in, in Parliament, and that's got to change. And I, I, I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a 99% a PR person because I think you're foolish if you don't see the advantage of. There are some advantages of first past the post, but I'm a 75% PR person because I think uh, there's, there's light and the shade. But one of the light parts is that if you have the system change. I think you'd get parties bubbling up and you get challengers to this awful uh, establishment party system we have that would represent mm. some of the ground, grassroots opinions and I think in a way that Auburn has done it in, for him and in a way that Trump did it in a way, I mean I always think Trump sort of, you know, I don't agree with, I, don't, I'm, I find him a desperately unappealing person mm. uh, and an ignoramus but you know, the horse he was on wasn't a bad horse, wrong rider probably. Some of the things he was saying were, nece were necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's been proven to be correct about a large number of well, things the Germans, as well. Did you see the other day, so, so I don't know if you've seen, it's hilarious. Uh, so he, he gave a speech, I think, to the United Nations where he, he tells the Germans that they're totally oh, right yeah. Yeah. on Russian energy and it's very foolish yeah. and it could be, and they laugh at him. Yeah. You know, they're not yeah. laughing now. <laughs> no, <laughs> so exactly, it's, uh, exactly. It's a little bit awkward. No, but just to rewind a second on the point you were making about kind of who are, are the people sitting in Parliament and mm. this fact that they all kind of know each other and everything. I think that really answers this question as well that you were posing earlier about why do we have this um, class of people, where does it come from and why have the politicians not been able to challenge them very mm. successfully? One reason they've not been able to mount that challenge is because they are them. Yes. They are interchangeable. Yes. You know, they, the, the kind of gap between a senior civil servant and an elected politician is just not that great. No, in outlook. Yeah, they've yeah, they been to the yeah. same universities, the same yeah. schools, they live in the same streets. But, but not only is it not that great an outlook, but they're also very interchangeable. Mm. I mean, people move. So 
the trajectory into Parliament, go back far enough in time, particularly if you were on the left, you might have come through the trade union movement. Yeah, you might have you, done a job. You might yeah. have had a proper job. Yes. Yes. You know, you might have had a proper job for a number of years, mm. been in the trade union movement and worked your way up into Parliament that way. And not, there are still one or two like that around, but they're few and far between nowadays. Nowadays, you're much more likely to see being an elected MP as a career, mm. you know, which you kind of start thinking about um, before you even choose which this political my, this party is, this you're is aligned my, to. I totally agree with you. This is my point about the, the governing class because I think uh, Blair and Cameron and Osborne are, and even Johnson, Johnson's yeah. a bit of a maverick, but largely the same and they, their attitude towards politics is unserious. Well, the and thing they, about they, Johnson is yeah. that uh, and where he becomes very typical in this I think is his move was from journalism into yes. politics and you see a number of them, they've either come from law into politics, business PR. into politics, Cameron was PR. Yeah, PR and yeah. journalism. Yeah. And so what that means then is when you see these press conferences, which we saw daily, um, mm. God help us, during the COVID crisis, and you see the, the kind of elected representatives stood there fielding questions from the press, those are their kind of, it looks as if it's an oppositional thing going on. But there wasn't a decent question asked. But in reality, you know, these are yeah. friends who no. socialise with each other. But they didn't ask any serious questions, Joanna. Exactly. I, I, sat, I sat through, I had to sit through a lot of them. And I kept asking, just ask the question, do you think that the consequences of the suppression measures might actually be worse than the lives saved from COVID? That was pretty much never no. asked. It no, was never, exactly. it's just off the agenda. So you, you talk about triggers. And I think this no. is the problem when you have a political class that is basically, I would be unkind here. I don't want to be unkind, but they are PR spirits. Well, they, they are. Yeah, but I think they genuinely believe a lot of what they say as well, which is, is kind of sad but true. Maybe they do, but I think belief, I mean, I, I sort of believe in belief. I don't mind people believing things. No. But I, I, just think, I, I just think it's, I think in a way it's sort of over-professionalised, over-superficial, uh, yeah. as Ben Comedy would call it, a very superficial approach to things. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess to clarify that, I mean, believe in it in the sense that, it, well, it's slightly held, but also because they believe there's nothing else to believe. If you take, so I guess the things I'm thinking about are things like net zero, mm. or even some of the policies which are now being challenged a little bit in relation to gender, mm. and, you know, gender neutral facilities, mm. for example, uh, gender neutral prisons, um, uh, self-identification. You know, it's it's almost like they believe in it by default because well, there's nothing else. But to they couldn't. In, so I think a lot of that. I do, whether they did, I don't know. I think my I've said this before, and I've got criticised for it. I think a lot of the attitudes to some Tories to work, uh, some particular gender ideology was a they didn't really think about it very carefully. Not really interested mm -hmm. in categories. I'm interested in it because I, as a philosopher, as a second-rate philosopher, I'm I'm interested in whether these categories work, and they just don't. So it's nonsense, a lot of it. But um, they sort of went along with it. What's that? Yeah, I don't really understand. And they thought that it was virtuous yes, to go along exactly, with it, so they gave exactly. way to it. So I think that's why it happened. Yeah, and um, I think, again, it comes back to what you were saying earlier about the um, influence of PR, mm. you know, and, and the fact that a lot of these politicians have got a background in PR. Mm. So if you're only... Um, way of, of kind of looking at decisions is to think from a PR perspective. Well, we what don't want it, to be the nasty party. Yeah, what would it look like? But that, <laughs> exactly. but that also, so I think the the other thing that affects us is the dinner party phenomenon. Yes, so you know, completely. what would it look like at the dinner party if I if I said this? It doesn't bother me. I have quite a few low status views, opinions. It's fine. Those, I think they're right. But you know, they're not high status opinions, and I think the political class couldn't hold a Johnson couldn't hold a no. uh, particularly with his new. Um, partner, you couldn't hold a, a low status opinion for very long and just gave it away. How, we should finally get on to what we're going to do mm -hmm. about it and you sort of slightly get into this in the end. So um, 
I think, I mean, in a way, it's, it sounds trite, but I think wokery, I, I think most, a lot of it, apart from all the status about the utilitarian stuff about it, I think a lot of it is just a complete failure to accept differences. And I think my vision of society is that you, if you are a diverse society, you have to, as a precondition, you must accept differences. And outcomes, you have to accept some disparities, and the, you have to have a civilised, uh, tolerant view of that. If you don't, uh, you're in trouble. So I think, would you say that was a general solution? I think in terms of, of opinions and, and values, and yes, I think it is really, really important that we learn to accept differences. Um, you know, I think one thing that's really important is that we do more than ever um, assert the importance of social class mm. um, and the, particularly as we uh, pursue these kind of net zero policies, um, really pointing out the, the devastating mm. effect this is having on the lives of lots of people and, and how this situation has been created, not just by what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, not just by um, COVID and lockdowns, but really 20, 30 years of elite opinion being formed within bubbles uh, without any kind of contact with reality. We're, we're particularly right-wing economics. I mean, this is the, the drives me mad. So they, they've had 30, 40 years of it. Uh, Blair didn't, wasn't elected to challenge Thatcherism. He was, he, what he did was in, in, entrench it. And the things, the basic things that we would ask for for a party, which, you know, reasonable things, nationalisation of of railways uh, and all the utilities, um, build some houses. These bread and butter things are considered very left-wing now, but, you, but the SP's always believed in them, and uh, we, we just think it's a basic thing. But asking that, I mean, what's the use of the Labour Party? I mean, I, I've said, you know, Starmer's like a, a, you know, a woodchopper without an axe to grind. He's got nothing. I mean, what's, what's the point of the Labour Party? I mean, he's just no, going to offer the same thing. So it's very frustrating. I mean, I think um, you, you, in the book, you, you say that one of the ways to deal with this is, is institutions. So you, mm -hmm. you praise Don't Divide Us, Free Speech Union, LGB Alliance and so on. I think that's, that's is that your best option, do you think, creating institutions? Well, I guess there's two things that I think are really crucial to pushing this back, and they're both very, very much connected. One is free speech mm. and the other is democracy. Mm. And I mean, I'll be completely honest, one of the best things that's happened politically in my lifetime was the vote for Brexit. Mm. And I think it was a real... Revolution. Yeah, well, yeah. it was, but also yeah. a very kind of revealing mm. um, process to see which side people fell on. Um, and by that, I don't necessarily mean in the run-up to the referendum. Yeah. I'm far more interested in what side people fell on post-referendum. Yes. Because post-referendum, people had a choice, whatever they thought to beforehand. It. Yeah, and I, I can get, you know, there was a principled remain position, That's, just as there was a principled yep. leave position. But I think after the referendum result came in, then for me, the only principled position was to respect democracy. We've, we've, it's very interesting you say that because we, because we are known as a very Benite, uh, very, very um, Eurosceptic in the traditional left way. Uh, party. That's true, mm -hmm. but I would estimate about about ten percent of SDP members voted Remain. Some of them occupy quite very senior positions in the SDP. They're all Democrats. Yeah, and that was the yes. difference. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's a really, really important point. But but I think what we've seen since twenty sixteen is just one attempt after another to mm. kind of trash democracy, mm. to ride roughshod over that referendum result. Mm. And I think mm. the people who've done this most virulently have been people on the left, mm. um, you know, who've who've really had no truck with this vote and have tried to do everything in their power to overturn it. Mm. 
Um, but I think I think when you let people have a say, that's when you realise what you were saying, the truth of what you were saying earlier, that, that really these woke views are held by, I would say, at most the 25% yeah. of people in society. You know, you've and we need to got... slim that down. I mean, what I didn't say mm. when we talk about universities, we need, to, we need to vastly slim down that. I mean, I think one of the, one of the solutions is, is ridicule. And I, I go back to, you know, um, the Iron Curtain and the tradition of, of ridiculing... Um, uh, autocracy and, uh, and and Stalinism, uh, people like Mill and Kundra, and you know you you would ridicule these no. people, and I think I think it's incredibly valuable. I think it's at the point when you allow them to overstretch. I have a friend who's a a, a senior lecturer, and he's he, you know the, the, we didn't talk about it, thank goodness, but the but you know the overstretch on gender identity is I think just liberalism overreach. It's just you know runaway liberalism. If I can have everything I want, and all and, and rights are power. Uh, you know, basically legal powers, and and I can have anything I want. Then I can say I'm what, whatever I want. And and this 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 friend said that he was teaching this student a few years ago, who sat in the front of the uh, lecture theatre, uh, and identified as a cat. And I'm not joking. And, and you know, and he started sort of, you know, uh, looking at his whiskers and sort of behaving like a cat. And he did this constantly. And it, I I don't know if it was a joke or not, but 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 my friend said, you know, at the end he didn't know whether to deliver a, a lecture on Aristotle or give him, to, give him a glass of milk, a bowl of milk. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? So, but I think ridicule is a way, a cleanser. And I think one of the things, one of the good things is that woke will always overstep. Well, it will. It absolutely will. And I completely agree with you about the importance of being able to ridicule these things of satire. But the thing that's very, very disturbing is that perhaps even more so than in kind of a Stasi time, you know, East Germany mm. or, or, you know, even going back hundreds of years in this country, the, the clamp down mm. on satire. Mm. So, I mean, the most famous example, I guess, would be Harry Miller, who yes. had the police coming because yeah. he tweeted a limerick or, or retweeted a limerick, which was puncturing some of the pomposity. But I think I identified as a fish. But they took on the wrong the person because he knows the law. Well, they did, yeah. but the problem is um, it sends a message to other people mm. you know and it, it kind of does filter out whenever these things happen mm. the message you know you've obviously you've got the person who's most affected mm. is the person that you, you know your character of harry miller who depending on their own strength of character is either able to fight back or not you mm. know and that's where groups like the free speech union or the lgb alliance or the sdp or the sdp <laughs> become very useful because yeah. they can help people realize this kind of strength in numbers yes, and you yes. can pose a challenge to these things but, but what worries me is that it sends a message to ordinary people who are thinking, you know, I'd love to poke fun at but this. But I can't. But if I hit retweet I know. on that, I know. Yeah. you know, will I have the police knocking on my door? Yeah, no, I think that's terrifying. Them? I think, yeah, I, th I mean, the police uh, really ought to look after no. serious crime. But that's why I say, you know, it's not just democracy mm. that uh, is important in pushing back against mm. rogue, but it absolutely is the fight for free speech as well. Mm. You know, mm. if, if we can't mount a, a fight for free speech, then we've given up on being able to fight for woke a fight against woke to push back against these trends. I totally agree. Uh, one, one final question. A lot of this stuff, you know, a lot of people find, I mean, I think what you've done, I think people that tackle this stuff is very brave. And I think uh, a lot of it's not very nice. You know, a lot of it's not, I mean, it's so crazy. A lot of it is, it's, it's, it's challenging, isn't it? Have you found, how, how have you found sort of dealing, writing a book like this? Has it been 
you know, how have you survived? <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem for me with writing that book was knowing where to stop. I mean, there's mm. just so many examples you could include. You know, I could still be writing it now. And mm. that was a difficult thing, knowing just to be able to say, right, I'm going to stop with this. Um, you know, I think I've been lucky, perhaps. I've, mm. not, I've certainly not had death threats since this book's come out. I think people tend to, I, well, I, I don't know, I'm guessing mm. that people kind of roll their eyes and think, you know, well, that's just me, and I don't know. But yeah, I'm, you, I'm, you take your freedoms, don't you? And actually, a lot of you, you're getting onto something there because actually it's not often what people say, it's consistency. So if the wrong person says yeah. the wrong thing, yes, exactly. that's why J.K. Rowling's copped yeah. it, because she's seen as a sort of progressive, and then she's held a line on something, and they've just gone mad. Uh, other people, okay, that's what they think, so maybe... Anyway, listen, thank you for writing. That, that is the book, um, How Woke One. Uh, very, very good book. Really enjoyed it. And uh, if nothing else, you've written the book. And the nice thing about it is it convenes people and you're not alone. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Cheers. Thank you.